Good morning, Grace Life. I, um, I love the opportunity to come up here, not because I particularly like being on stage and holding a microphone, but I just like to see all your faces. Um, God was just putting it on my heart this week, and I was just praying for every single person that I could think of that has ever entered the doors of this church and the ones that um, are here often, but um, also the ones that God has brought in and out for a season. So looking at your faces, it just gives me joy because um, I was praying for you by name this week. And if I don't know your name, I was praying for you too because I was praying that whoever God would bring into this building today, that he would do a work in your life, um, that he would be the lifter of your face, of your, of your smile towards him, that he would be the uh, very real and present help in your hour of need. And um, I just thank you, Lord, that I know you hear these prayers, and no one is here by accident. Um, so, and I just want to tell you that I, I love you so much. Tommy loves you so much. Our family is uh, just so privileged, so honored to be part of this church. Um, you have no idea. You have no idea just how we are just all the time so humbled that God has given us such a sweet, sweet church family um, who we're just so, we're just so grateful to, to have. So every Sunday, we have a tradition here at Grace Life, and we share the Grace Life welcome. And uh, it always, it just always resonates with me. It says, to all who mourn and need comfort, to all who are weary and need rest, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares, he does. To all who fail and need strength, to all who sin and need a savior like me every day of my life, to all who hunger and thirst after righteousness, and to whoever else will come, Grace Life Church opens wide her doors and the name of Jesus Christ and offers you welcome. We are blessed, blessed to have you. And today we will be back in Romans, and I believe it's Romans 2, beginning in verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will, and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, and a <laughs> director of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself while you preach against stealing do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor, abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision, is, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? 
then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you, who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Thank you. Wait a minute. Am I supposed to say anything about the QR code? Oh. You like my backwards moonwalk? Um, okay. Are we going to put it up on the screen? Maybe not. That's okay. It is at the front. Um, maybe this is just something that we're just going to add a little reminder here and there. But when you walk in the doors, there is, um, I think there may be one or two places that you can um, scan the QR code. And basically what that does is um, it gives you a, a page with some buttons that will take you to the scripture that we're reading this morning. And also, um, one thing we really wanted to emphasize was it will take you also to a, um, a page where you can submit a prayer request. And um, we have other ways that you can, you know, at any time of the day, you can um, let us know that you need some prayer. There's a, a, a number that you can text, 9440-9444. Yeah, sorry. No, no, don't listen to me. I had to have cue cards. 94000. I don't even know most of my family's cell phone numbers. So, okay. That number that Diane said, 94000. See, I knew there was three of some number. And Text Grace Life. Yeah, 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 yeah. You won't get anywhere just texting that number and say, pray for me. Yeah, the text Grace Life first. And then it will come back. Then you'll be put in the system. And then any time of the day, it could be 3 o'clock in the morning. I'm not guaranteeing that, you know, that's going to wake somebody up at 3 and it might. But um, you can submit prayer requests anytime, any hour. There's ways on our website, and there's the QR code. Um, so when you scan that, it'll also take you to, to that. And also, just so you know, um, listen, we, you know, everyone's coming in this door with burdens. Don't be fooled for one second thinking that everyone at this church has it all together. The only, you know, thing that sets us apart is we're held together um, by the one who holds all things. And um, so, you know, anytime you need prayer, don't, you know, you don't even have to send it electronically or write it down. You can grab somebody. We have, you know, plenty of people at Grace Life that will go back somewhere privately and pray with you and pray for any of your burdens. We at this church really believe in the power of prayer. Um, because we see it all throughout Scripture, that, that God promises that it's powerful and effective, but we've seen it. We have seen it in this church. we got some serious prayer warriors in this church, and they will take your needs before the throne, and, um, and we believe that God hears and answers those prayers. So anytime, so, you know, share your prayer requests with us, um, and then and it takes you to a few other things. So I'll leave it all a surprise for you if you've never scanned the QR code before. Uh, and I think, I believe that's it. All right. All right, it's good to be here today. You can keep your Bible open to Romans chapter 2. I want to pray and just ask God to just settle our minds and our hearts, remove anything that could potentially distract you or would become an impediment or a hurdle to you fully hearing and understanding God's Word and obeying it and enjoying it and understanding it. So 
Let's just pause for a second to pray. Before we do, I'm Tommy Clayton. I'm the lead pastor here, and I know we have guests every week, uh, some of them first time, some returning. Uh, if I've not had the privilege of meeting you yet, I would love that opportunity to do that after the service. Um, we're grateful that, that God brought you here today, and as Sarah said, we, we don't believe in accidents. We believe in providence and sovereignty, and so I was praying this week, Lord, bring who needs the encouragement and the challenge of this passage, and I trust God heard and answered that prayer. So let's pray and ask for His help. Lord, thank you again. This is your day, the day that you have made, and this is a special day. It's the first day of the week. It's the day that we're reminded of both your compassion because you died for sinners like us who, who don't deserve a substitute. We don't deserve a sin bearer. We don't deserve for you to carry our shame. Uh, and, and it also reminds us of your great power because you rose from the grave on the third day and you ascended to heaven and you are now sitting at the right hand of the Father on high. You're seated because the work is finished, it's done, it's complete, Lord. There's nothing for us to add to it. And yet, as this passage says, we try to add every day, but we're reminded of your power, your, your perfect, finished work on our behalf. And so, today, would you honor yourself? Would you exalt your name through this message, through our time together, through our fellowship, through our hearing and obeying, through our repentance, Lord, uh, when you confront us with ourselves? And we turn from as much as we know of our sin to as much as we know of you. Help us to do that together. And uh, pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Romans chapter 2. And we are going to be in verse, uh, verses 17 through 29. We're just going to finish chapter 2 today. And by the way, uh, before we jump in here, I have pledged to, to myself and to you We've been in this book, and it's amazing, and it's a long epistle. And so at the end of every chapter, the very next Sunday, we're going to take a break from Romans, and uh, next Sunday is July the 4th. Uh, I can't remember the last time July the 4th fell on a Sunday, but we're going to take a break from Romans on that day, and we'll see what God has for us. It'd be a surprise. Maybe it'd be a surprise to me too, but I invite you to come back. Uh, didn't want you to be confused why we won't be in Romans next week. So Romans 2, Paul wrote this letter to a church in Rome. This is a letter. It's called an epistle. He wrote it to a congregation just like you. And it was to be handled and read, the scroll, the whole thing from beginning to end in front of a congregation just like I'm doing now. So in some ways, it was a, it was a sermon. In other ways, it was a great theological treatise. And it packed a punch. And Paul had a purpose. He had an intention. He had a design for why he wrote this letter. And here was his purpose, okay? He wanted the people in Rome, the churches in Rome, the Christians in Rome to understand, experience, and enjoy the full power of the gospel. That was his threefold purpose, to understand the gospel, to experience the power of the gospel, to, and to enjoy the gospel. And yes, it is possible for Christians to fail to do those three things. Even after they're in Christ, we forget. That's why we have so many reminders built in to just the, the, the flow and the order and rhythm of the church, like a baptism is a reminder. Communion is a reminder. Jesus said, as often as you do this, do this in what? Remembrance. Why? Because we forget. We forget. So God knows we're visual learners, and he reminds us. That's why this entire epistle was written to Christians who forget and who don't enjoy the power of the gospel. They, they, they they don't understand it. They stop looking at it with interest like angels long to look into it. So that was Paul's purpose for writing it. And that's why he took great pains, 16 chapters, one of the longest epistles in the New Testament. And that's why we are taking great pains. We're going through this really slowly. 
because I don't want us to miss anything that God has for us. It's so packed full theologically of rich, deep gospel truth, good pieces of the good news. And so Paul wants us to enjoy the full rescue of Jesus. And sometimes we don't. There was a, I don't know if you've ever heard of water witching. That's a crazy term, isn't it? Have you ever seen somebody that holds the sticks or the metal rods and they're looking for water? They do that in third world countries. They do it in South America. They do it in Costa Rica. There was, there was a villager that was a water witcher. It, just interest, interesting piece of news. It's the law before you build a house or a village in Costa Rica, uh, you have to build a well first. And before you build a well, you have to have water substantiated, proof that it's there. And so people would hire a water witcher to find this. And this is a big thing in America too, apparently. The word is weird, a water witcher. But there was a water witcher in Costa Rica, and he did really well for himself. And all these people are paying good money or bartering cattle or goats, whatever, they, whatever the currency was. So he was well off. And he decided to get a motorcycle for himself. So that's what he did. This villager dude who was a water witcher, lived in primitive part of, of uh, Costa Rica, he got a motorcycle, and he was a very proud man, and he did not understand how this motorcycle operated. God couldn't even figure out how to start it, but he was really proud. So guess what he didn't do? He didn't ask for help, but this was like, this was like a status symbol. I don't know what kind it was. I didn't get that part of the story. Maybe it was a Harley. I don't know. So do you know what this guy did? True story. Jeff Eckert told me, it has to be true, his parents built a house in Costa Rica, and he, he, he firsthand, you know, had, had an encounter with this. So, so this guy would push this motorcycle from village to village to show it off. Never started it. I guess he only rode it if he could figure out how to get it in neutral and hop on it going down the mountains. But, but check that out. Picture that in your mind. No PowerPoint for that today. But picture that in your mind. How ridiculous. How absurd. How sad. The guy spent a lot of money getting this nice, modern technology, gas-operated motorcycle. He's not understanding it, is he? He's not experiencing its power, and he's certainly not enjoying it to the full extent that he could. It was just there. He had it. And I think so often we're guilty of that with the Christian faith and with the gospel. We have it. Are we really experiencing it? Have we really fully understood it? And are we enjoying it? Sometimes we're just pushing a motorcycle from village to village because we're too proud to examine our hearts, to examine ourselves. Well, what Paul is going to help us do here is to fully enjoy God's rescue through Jesus. But before we do that, we have to reject our own systems of self-salvation that have enticed us and have blinded us and have deceived us. And here's what's so dangerous. Oftentimes, these self-salvation projects, the things that we're boasting in, relying on, resting in, trusting in, they look legit. They look religious. They look good. They look healthy. And so it's, there's, there's, there's a seduction and there's an enticement and there's a deception there. Sometimes we end up doing what the great writer C.S. Lewis said. He said, so often we are making mud pies in the slums because we have forgotten what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We're far too easily pleased as Christians. Sometimes we're just so con- content with status quo and with what we think we understand of the Christian faith. So often we base our hopes for getting right with God and staying right with God on criteria that is misleading and will ultimately deceive us. But listen, Paul's a good pastor, and I want to be a good pastor to you. And so what he does here is he confronts us with the dangers of moralism, and then he gives us the cure. So PowerPoint today, the outline is going to be three things about moralism, the cause of moralism, 
the cost of moralism and the cure for moralism. That's, that's our outline. First of all, what in the heck is moralism? Maybe you've never heard that word before, or maybe you've heard an equivalent, something like legalism or self-righteousness or religious hypocrisy. They're all, they're all close cousins, okay? What is moralism? Moralism says this. It says that God's love and acceptance of me is based on my religious identity or my social standing or my moral performance. Did you get that? Moralism says this, God's love of me and God's acceptance of me, God being pleased with me, is resting on and dependent on, on, on three things that are kind of linked together. One, my religious identity. Well, I'm a non-denominational church. Well, I'm a Baptist. I'm a Presbyterian. I'm an Anglican. I'm a Methodist. We are the men and wisdom will die with us, right? Like Job's friend said. Your religious identity or your social identity. I'm a Jew. I'm a, I'm a Gentile. I'm an Athenian, whatever, whatever it is, or your moral performance. I read my Bible three times a day. <laughs> I pray for two hours. I've memorized entire portions of Scripture. I give away this much money. I've been baptized. I'm an official member of the church. I take communion every week. Whatever it is, it's not that those things are bad. They're not. They're great. Those are good, healthy, wholesome rhythms, some of them. Great denominations, Good affiliations, good practices, good habits of grace. But when you transfer your hope from Jesus to those things, bad news, bad things happen. Moralism is one of the ugliest things in the world. It deceives people, it destroys people, and it gives a very bad taste for the world, for the unbelievers out there, for Christianity. They hate it. God hates it just as much as they do. But we're the ones so often that get blinded by it. Paul doesn't want that to happen. So that's why he wrote this section in Romans one man said, moralism is the largest religion in the world. And I tend to agree with that. It's the largest religion in the world. What causes it? Well, we see in this passage here, pride and presumption. Pride and presumption. We're the good Christians. Have you ever thought that? Now, to be honest, come on, guys. Come on. It's grace-like. Let's be honest. I have thought that very, very, very often. I've thought that. I still do from time to time. God's breaking me still and humbling me and exposing my own heart. Psalm 139, Lord, search me, examine me, show me the filth in there so I can confess it and repent of it and grow. I thought that. I thought, man, I'm a real Christian. <laughs> I'm a good Christian. I'm a real Christian. I'm the only Christian. <laughs> some, people th some people think that. Some people that come and knock on your door and tell you, oh, yeah, yeah, we believe the same things and say, do you believe I'm a Christian? Man, that cuts through the heart. The thing, we're, we, we are the only Christians in the world. Everybody else is going to hell if they're not this denomination or don't do this practice. We're devoted. It, it causes you to compare yourself with others. It, it, it causes you to be condescending. And you know, people pick up on that. You know the only people who don't realize they're being condescending? The people that are condescending. You just, you're, you're blinded to it. But the people you're being condescending towards, man, they pick up on that. And I will tell you this, especially children. That's why it takes a very special person to, to be a parent and to teach children. Because, man, they'll just, kids can, can smell a disingenuous person. Can't they? They just pick up on it. So this is what Paul says here. I better get into the passage here. But if you call yourself a Jew 
and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. So he's, set, he's setting up the Jews in the congregation at Rome who were very proud. He's saying, so if you call yourself a Jew and you, you have all these things, you do all these things, and you're trusting in all those things, do you practice what you preach? That's what he's asking them. Man, Paul is getting all up in their kitchen, all up in their kitchen. He's saying, you guys have the law, do you obey it? You teach great sermons, do you listen? <laughs> you confront people, do you confront yourself? He's asking these really direct and pointed questions that have edges, they're sharp. And I think we'd be foolish if we're not asking the Spirit of God to ask us these questions too. Like, Lord, what am I boasting in today, trusting in today, relying on today that makes me think I'm better than other people and that makes me think you love me that's outside of faith in Jesus? Because that's all that's required. In fact, that's all that's accepted (laughs) is faith in Jesus. Anything else is rejected by God and will take you down a dark path that's, that's very destructive. Paul's confronting the Jews. Rely on the law, boast in God. First of all, they were called Jews. You know what that word Jew means? It means praise. Praise Jehovah. Praise God. We are His people. Which is a good thing, right? Unless you start thinking we are His only people. We are the only one God loves because we're the best. We have stars upon ours, right? <laughs> like Dr. Seuss's Sneetch's story. We are the best people. Oh, God, so, he's so lucky and blessed to have us. He's so fortunate. What would God do without us? I can say this because I'm from a Southern Baptist. That those are my roots, and Southern Baptists have great theology. We're a non-denominational church, but it's not because I've lost my Baptist moorings, okay? But I remember one year when I was a Southern Baptist at the Southern Baptist Convention. Well, actually, I'm lying. This happened way before I was even born. This happened during the... During the, uh, well, no, I was born. I just was clueless. It was in the 80s. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> when they were fighting at the Southern Baptist Convention, you probably remember this, Brother Michael. I know you Methodist by, by conviction, but, but you, you remember how the Southern Baptists in the 70s and 80s, man, they were, they were fighting over the veracity of the Bible. It was liberalism and conservatism, and it was each other's throat. Can we trust the Bible? Can we believe it's actually God's Word? Is it inerrant? Is it inspired? Is it infallible? And then they were talking about how, how your beliefs on those things would impact the worldwide mission effort. And there was one guy that had the audacity to say this at the Southern Baptist Convention, which is where thousands of messengers and representatives go every year and gather, the Southern Baptist Convention. And he said, if, if, if we don't go, who will? God has us. If we don't do it, who are, who's going to do it? Who's, who's left to do it? And, and, and the thrust with what that man said was, man, the Southern, God, the Southern Baptists are all God has. If we don't do it, the mission's going to fall. And I get it. I get how you can motivate somebody. If not us, who? If not now, when? I get that idea. But man, that comes across as arrogant, doesn't it? I mean, God can raise up from these very stones Baptist <laughs> if he wanted to, Right? He can use a Presbyterian, an Anglican, a Methodist, a Baptist. God often uses the most unlikely agents of rescue to reach people. Have you noticed that? You just consider your own testimony. How in the world did you hear about Jesus when so many other people haven't? 
I can guarantee you it's not because you were wise and clever and with it. (laughs) It would almost look like an accident from your perspective. (laughs) Anyway, I got off my script there. So they call themselves Jews, praise to Jehovah. They relied on their possession of the law. They, they believed we had the Torah, we had the Old Testament, and therefore we had this unique standing before God. He really respects us. And it's like, no, 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 wait a minute. He gave you that, right? Yeah. You didn't come up with it, right? No. <laughs> so you think that makes you special just because he gave that to you? It, it does. It's a special treasure that you had that, uh, but you had that in spite of yourself, not because of yourself. They brag about regarding God, which is good. It's good to boast in God. But they were boasting because of thinking they were God's favorites. They prided themselves on knowing His revealed will from the Ten Commandments. Therefore, they were able to make make correct ethical and moral judgments. They knew the right clothes to wear. They knew the right foods to eat. They knew the people to not be friends with. They knew the parties to not go to. The music to not listen to, right? They knew what was clean and what was unclean, what was an abomination to God, which is good. It's good to have the, the ritual cleansings and, and the ceremonial law and all of that. But man, they took pride in that. They discerned things that were essential. They prided themselves on being able to make superior moral judgments about everything. They were far beyond the ignorance of the Gentile and the Amalekites, Philistines. They were instructed from the law. They had illumination. They had mastered it. They memorized it. They quoted it. Man, this is all sounding really familiar, isn't it? They even indexed the entire Old Testament, cross-referenced it. And again, Paul's not saying there's anything wrong with that. He's saying, but when you boast in that and rely on that, and that word is mentioned several times, they boasted in it, they boasted in it. That's what got cross with, with Paul. He said, there's only one thing you boast in. You remember Galatians six fourteen, Boast only in the what? Cross. <laughs> That's the only thing you can boast in and rely upon. That's what you've been circumcised to the world, and the world has been circumcised to you. Only thing. Only thing with any power. So he's saying, the equivalent would be, I belong to a good church. I have good theology. I know God's will. I know God. I make the right moral and ethical decisions, and everybody else doesn't. You'd fall right into the trap here that he's setting for you. And maybe we don't say those things out loud, but maybe if we really examine our heart, we believe those things. We're thinking those things. That's what boosts our ego. We're just functional moralists, if that's our heart. And that's why Paul, that's why Paul in verse 21 does get in our kitchen. He says, do you, do you practice what you preach? And then listen to this list that he says in verse uh, 21. You who teach others, do you teach yourselves? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. This is really an interesting list here. He's saying, you abhor idols. Now, the Jews had been broken of physical idolatry, iconic idolatry, bowing down to an image that was made out of stone or metal or wood. They they abhorred that. God broke them of that. That was their captivity in the Old Testament. They were deported on two different occasions. Northern Israel and southern Judah were deported because of their idolatry. 
And so they took vows. We are never, ever, ever going to, going to commit idolatry again, and we hate it, and we're not going to tolerate it. We abhor it. And yet, do you know what was a prevalent practice in the time that Paul wrote this? And I'm sure he was confronting it. Some Jews would go into pagan temples, and they would take out the images. And those were sacred images. And under the pretense of God hates this, and we're not going to tolerate this in our nation, then they would go and they would sell it on eBay, <laughs> right? Or whatever they had. <laughs> Seriously, that happened. People were confronted in the Jewish writings of that day. They would be selling stuff on Craigslist and Facebook Marketplace. So we, hate, we hate idolatry. And he's like, but you're robbing temples. Some people think that was more figurative, but I think it's, it's, it was actually happening that way. In fact, in Acts chapter 19, verse 37, Paul was brought on trial, and he was clear. They said, this man has not robbed temples. Apparently, Jews were doing that. That was as common as, as lying back then. That was one of their pet sins that they had grown to tolerate, and God hated it. And he said, do you realize what you're doing to the, to the image of Christ, to the image of God in the world? So they rejected, they rejected idolatry, but listen, you may reject bowing down and falling down to an image, and I know we would all do that. I don't know of anybody in grace life that, you know, practices ancestor worship and <laughs> not that I know of. If, if you Come talk to me if you struggle with that. But here's what we do struggle with. Letting something outside of Christ shape our meaning and our identity. Thinking, if I only had this or if I only had that, whatever it is, whether it's power, comfort, approval, possessions, pleasure, control, you're, you are violating the commandment that thou shalt not commit idolatry just as much as anybody falling down in the dirt in front of an image. It's the same to God. And Paul's confronting that idea here. So how do we know if we're moralist? Let's finish out point one here. Number one, the moralist loves the concepts of truth, but they're never changed by them. They remain cold, detached, indifferent, apathetic. They can quote Scripture, man, like nobody's business, but they have a cold, stony heart. They just haven't been changed by it. You remain unchanged. They read the Bible Maybe, and in, in, in they're reading it, they're thinking of other people who should be convicted by this. Have you ever fallen into that? People do it in sermons all the time. And people even come to me and say, man, I wish so-and-so was here. <laughs> I said, God wishes you were here, and you are. So listen to the sermon. It's for you. It's not for somebody else. And I get it, especially if it's an encouraging message. And you know somebody that's discouraged and they need it. But if we're honest, we may not say this part out loud. It's like, man, I know. This is, God is nailing so-and-so today. I wish they were here. But you're here. <laughs> you're, you're here. When you're reading the Bible, I hope, man, that it's like a Hebrews 4.12, that it's living and active and sharper, and that you're convicted by it, and that you're assaulted by it, that you're challenged by it. I think that slides, yeah, it was ahead of its time. That's okay. So you remain unchanged. Do you hear the Bible or you read the Bible? but you're not convicted or comforted or thrilled or disturbed or melted or lifted up. And here's the second, here's the second test, moral superiority. If you are re re relying on your religious, or religious identity or denominational affiliation or certain practices 
and you're looking down on those who failed in the same, in the same areas and don't belong to your group, that's a sure test, man. You're a moralist. You're just a highly functioning moralist. Rather than speaking words of encouragement to somebody who is struggling or speaking the truth with compassion to somebody who's in unbelief, you'd rather be condescending and judge them. Moralism does not eliminate sin. It just hides it. That's the real danger. There's a substance, there's a form, but there's no power like Paul wrote to Timothy. They got the form of godliness, but they're denying the power. It's buried. So that's number one, the, uh, the cause of moralism. It's pride, it's presumption, it's social standing, religious affinity and, and affiliation denominationally. And all of us are in danger of those things. And I'll be really, really honest with you, that was one of the reasons when Jeff and I planted this church, we weren't rushing in to affiliate with the denomination. Especially back then, all the things that were going on in different denominations, I just wanted to pray and wait and say, you know what? The last thing I want is for somebody that got, who, whose heart God is working on, they may be seeking Him, and then they, they say, oh, it's a, it's a Baptist church. Yeah, yeah, I know all about Baptist. And I'm not ashamed of being a Baptist. But I thought, let's just, let's just hold out for a while. Let's, let's plant this non-denominationally and see where God will lead us. Point number two, what is the cost of moralism? What's the cost of moralism? Look at the last part of verse 24 there, or 23. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. Well, it's no big deal though, right? We all do that. We're all sinners, people say. Well, look at what verse 24 says. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. <laughs> you who honor God, you who want to glorify God, and the Jews did. They, they wanted, you know, they revered the name of God so much. Do you realize they would not even write it? It was called the Tetragrammaton. They would not even write the name of God. That's why we have Yahweh, because there's no vowels in there. They had a certain way of writing it. It's really interesting. They felt it would be blasphemous to speak God's name or to write God's name. And Paul says, that's great. You're Jews. You really cherish this idea of honoring God. But do you know his name, which is the totality of who he is? He says, it's being blasphemed all around the world because of you. Now, let's just hit the pause button for a minute. If you knew, if you knew that the habits of your life, the rhythms of your life, your practice of Christianity was that off-putting to people who had no affiliation or affinity with the church? How would that strike you? Like, hey, you know people hate God's guts because of you. They don't read a Bible. They've never been to church, but they're reading you. They're analyzing your life, and they're like, that's Christianity. Oh, my word, get away from me. <laughs> I don't even want their message to be true if it will turn me into that. I'd rather remain as I am in all my brokenness and messiness. But Lord, please, if you're up there, if there is such a thing as God, don't turn me into one of those Christians. That happens just about every single week, guys. And I know it makes us feel better sometimes when it's really scandalous because we're like, oh, I would never do that. But Paul's not talking about necessarily tons of scandalous stuff here. Adultery, yes. But robbing temples, lying, stealing, those are things that I believe Christians are regularly guilty of if they, if they scratch beneath the surface. Unbelievers pick up on that. Paul is quoting from Isaiah 52, by the way, which is a, a section where the Israelites were being attacked by the Assyrians. And instead of turning to God and asking Him for help, they ran down to Egypt. 
And they said, Pharaoh, help us. Help us. And God says, do you realize everyone's looking at you, this mighty nation that I've created. I'm this almighty God who delivered my people centuries earlier from Egypt. And they're saying, look at, look at, the, look at those people, look at the Israelites. Look at God's people running down to Pharaoh for help from the Egyptians. I guess God can't protect them. I guess God can't preserve them. And this is what God said in Isaiah 52. He said, all the day my name is despised. So here's a question for you. How are you possibly causing the name of Christ to be despised in the world today? If you were the only living representative of Christianity, you were the only person that any pagan, any neighbor, any unbelieving family member had as a connection to Christianity, what would their conclusion be? That's a good question to ask yourself. Are you humble? Are you approachable? Are you vulnerable? Are you, are you cherishing God's law? Are you honoring the name of Christ? Is your life different? Does it stand out for the right reasons, not the wrong reasons? That's what Paul is, is attacking here and confronting this idea. A moralist will be smug. I'm good. A moralist will be insecure. My goodness is my righteousness, so don't question it. You know, a moralist cannot handle criticism. Ooh, everybody got quiet in here. Oh, I'm hitting, I'm, I'm hitting the trail. <laughs> Somebody who is radically insecure, that's a really good sign, man. You're slipping into moralism. Don't critique me. Don't question me. Let's not talk about my struggles. I can't. That's my identity. My righteousness, my perceived righteousness is, is my all. It's my, it's my everything. A moralist is judgmental because they have to find somebody worse off than them so they feel better about themselves, themselves, see? And they're anxious. Have I done enough? Will I be found out? Now, that one, that one is powerful. I think so many people that are apprehensive and anxious, deep down beneath the surface, they're like a duck under the water. <laughs> There's all this turbulence in their heart because they feel like a, a, a scam, like they're going to be found out. They're so anxious. Have I done enough? Have I been good enough? Did I read my Bible enough? Did I pray enough? Is God happy with me today? Is this a bad day or a good day? This is what Richard Lovelace said in 1978. He wrote this. He said, Christians who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus. Yeah, I don't know if you can read it up here. It's apologize. It's, I wanted to put it on one slide. Christians who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus, apart from their present spiritual achievements, are subconsciously, radically insecure persons, much less secure than non-Christians because of all the constant bulletins they receive from their Christian environment about the holiness of God and the righteousness they are supposed to have of their own righteousness. Excuse me. Their insecurity shows itself in pride a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness and defensive criticism of others. They come naturally to hate other cultural styles and other races in order to bolster their own security and discharge their suppressed anger. They cling desperately to legal pharisaical righteousness, but envy, jealousy, and other branches on the tree of sin grow out of their fundamental insecurity. That's what's going on in the heart of a moralist. I wonder if it resonates with anybody. Or are we too insecure to admit it? <laughs> that Richard Lovelace pegged a lot of... The Bible's got us pegged, folks. And people find that absolutely unattractive. There's, there's a stay away sign on you for Christianity. 
<laughs> Don't get too close, you'll turn into me. <laughs> Religious pride and presumption can make you insufferable. You'll drive people away from God, not to God. That's what happened to the Jews in Jesus' day. You remember what he said of them? I think we got a slide, just a couple of verses. In Matthew 15, he said, speaking of the leaders, he said, leave them alone. In other words, get away from them. Can you imagine being a pastor and having the Son of God come down and say, stay away from him. He doesn't represent me. Leave them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. He said this in Matthew 23, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. See, keep away sign. We're not in there, but we're going to make sure that nobody else does. He said you would cross land and sea for one proselyte and make that person twice the son of hell as you are. They viewed themselves as gods, lights, teachers, correctors, and they looked down with condescension and scorn on others. How blinding is moralism? Well, those people killed the Messiah. How, how blinded and self-deceived would you have to be for all the theology that you memorized and studied, the living human personal embodiment of it comes down and you murder him? <laughs> That's pretty blind. And maybe we're not so very much unlike them in points. The Gentiles sensed this. When Paul wrote this, the Jews in Rome, they were the embodiment of what Paul was talking about. And the Jews sensed it. One of their historians, Tacitus, wrote this. Among themselves, the Jews' honesty is inflexible, and their compassion is quick to move. But to all other persons, they show the hatred of antagonism. Now, why, why would somebody treat unbelievers that way and a different race of people that way? Because they thought they were superior. They were God's gift to the world, and they despised everybody else. In Alexandria, the Jews allegedly took an oath never to show kindness to a Gentile. And guys, not only can we behave this way toward unbelievers, we can behave this way toward one another. I'm just speaking personally. Things that are like, here's the gospel, here's Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. He died for sinners. He lived a sinless life. He was born of a virgin. He rose on the third day. There's the central core doctrines of Christianity. Everything else is secondary. It's not, it's not unimportant. It's just less important. Like, which, which, uh, how often do we take communion? We do it the first Sunday of every month. Do you realize that's a point of division and contention for a lot of people? <laughs> What's your worship style preference? Some people put that on par with Jesus is the Son of God. I don't really think Jesus cares our worship preference. I think fast songs are good and slow songs are good. Hymns are good, praise songs are good. It's the heart that matters, right? It's the heart. Some people take things like spiritual gifts. Does God still supernaturally and miraculously give human beings the gift of healing or of prophecy or tongues? There's whole divisions in the body of Christ that occur because of that. And I think it grieves the heart of God. I really do. I really believe that. That's important, figuring those things out. But there's good, godly men and women on both sides of that. Both sides. I used to make that a serious point of contention, and it grieves my heart and embarrasses me. What about free will, predestination, election, and God's sovereignty? We're going to get to that in chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11, okay? 
But I got to be honest. Can I come clean for, for a minute? Used to, I would go around picking arguments with other Christians that, I, Christians that I thought were inferior to me because they didn't have the same convictions about that. I'm, I'm serious. If I could leave a conversation with a person and was convinced that they believed the same way about those doctrines I did and had never talked to them about the gospel, I would feel content and, and supreme. That's terrible. And those doctrines are precious. I love them. They're powerful. God's used them mightily in revivals. And there's been a lot of contention that's happened because of them too that's really sad and that's off-putting to people. Unbelievers are watching all these arguments happen. And they're like, hey, these guys don't even, they don't even agree with one another. Why would we listen to them? Anyway, a lot of other stuff can be said about that. What's your mode of baptism? Do you sprinkle or do you dunk? <laughs> well, let's just make sure we know what baptism symbolizes, right? That's the most important thing to God. And by the way, we dunk. <laughs> what the word in Greek means, baptizo. It means to immerse. I mean, we're, you got to get them all the way under the water here, guys, right? <laughs> Biblical orthodoxy, Francis Schaeffer said this, Biblical orthodoxy without compassion is surely the ugliest thing in the world. Francis Schaeffer almost abandoned Christianity because he could not reconcile what he saw in America, in American Christianity, everybody at each other's throats. He could not reconcile that with his understanding of the Bible. He actually left America and went to the Swiss Alps and launched with his wife a fellowship called Labrie, where lots of people who were questioning Christianity could come and find real answers. Amazing. Maybe you grew up in the D.C. talk. You remember, you remember that uh, Christian group? I guess they're still around, aren't they? Did the band break up? I don't know. Can't keep up with it. They had an album called Jesus Freak, one of the most popular you probably remember this when you worked at the Christian bookstore. Here's the, here's the way one of those songs, What If I Stumble, I think is the name of it. Here's how the song started out. It was Brendan Manning, I think uh, it was his voice, and he says, the single greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, then walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. You guys remember that? And then it went, what if I stumble, what if I fall? I'm not going to sing it, don't worry. When I attended seminary years ago, there was a guy who was, a, he was an alumni. He, he had graduated from that seminary, and he came to the chapel. We had to go to chapel twice a week, and I just got to be honest, man. There's something about a freshly graduated seminary guy. When he comes back to the seminary and preaches to the seminary guys, they just, usually they want to impress you with all this exegetical, and it was just boring, man. We were like, come on, man. I'm going on two hours of sleep here, bro. End the sermon. Land the plane. One guy came. He, <laughs> you guys are saying, take your own medicine, aren't you? <laughs> hey, listen, come on. <laughs> There's one guy came. He was compelling. He was interesting. His message was gripping. It was on the Old Testament. Some of my favorite, you know, parts of the Bible are in the Old Testament. And he preached about King Saul the demise and the downward spiral of King Saul. And I've never forgotten that message. I loved it. Apparently, that guy forgot it because fast forward the tape. And by the way, this guy was, he led a thriving church. Uh, he wrote books that were endorsed by big names, celebrity Christian leaders. He had his own podcast. He inspired me. He inspired a lot of other people. And he preached grace. And just a couple of weeks ago, man, it came out. It broke really big. This, this guy's life was just a complete contradiction. Just about everything that Paul mentioned here in this passage, that guy was doing secretly, and it got exposed. His wife found out. 
And it happened with a, pro, with, with a high-profile uh, couple that was a Major League Baseball player who started a 501c3 Christian organization and his wife. And this guy, turns out, was, was having an affair, a sexual affair with his wife, ongoing, even when he was doing those things in ministry. And he was robbing their 501c3 uh, financial charity organization. And it all broke and it came out. And I made the mistake of going online just to see what people were saying about it because it was a high-profile thing. And it, it saddened my heart because so, this guy's not repented. His sin was scandalous, but his repentance, I'm still waiting for it. And I was reading some of the things that unbelievers were saying. And I had them in my notes. I don't want to read them because I'll cry reading them. It was things like, that's disgusting. And yeah, that's Christianity. Yeah, there's your God. And I know that's scandalous and, and those things get our attention. We're like, yeah, but guys, listen, it doesn't have to be scandalous in public for God's name to be blasphemed. It could just be your neighbors are watching you. Your unbelieving family members are watching you. You don't even maybe know this. They're waiting for the right time to come to you because they're broken. They're desperate. They're at their wit's end. Their life is not making sense. They don't have any meaning, any purpose, maybe not even a will to live, and they're waiting to come and talk to you. And maybe there's a stay away sign on you, and God's name is blasphemed. I don't know, but that could be a very real possibility. The Jews were supposed to be a source of light and blessing to all the nations. You remember that? Through you, I'll bless all the nations, God told Abraham. But instead, all the nations were blaspheming God. And listen, in a similar way, we're supposed to be salt and light, right? We're supposed to illuminate. We're supposed to point to Jesus like, excuse me, <clears throat> like a floodlight. You know, the thing about floodlights, those of you that have done any landscaping, floodlights, you're not even really supposed to see them. They're just supposed to just point up, right? Like, don't look at me, look at him. I want, I want my life to make his existence look, look amazing. That's our ministry. That's what we're supposed to do. Did the Jews listen to, Rome, to Paul's letter in Rome? This is really cool. This is a really cool story, and we're, we're going to, I'm almost done, okay? Hang in there. Uh, Ancient Roman culture was a lot like America today. It was overly sexualized. It was saturated with depravity. It was proud, contentious, all the things that America is today. But the good news came to them in the early centuries, just like it, it comes to us in 2021. And it said to them, Jesus is better than all the lies and the deception and the false promise of this hyperly sexualized society. And they believed it, and the Jews believed it, and they read Paul's letter, and they repented. Check this out. There was a Roman emperor named Julian the Apostate. There he is. That's actually a statue of him. It's not him. <laughs> he, he hated Christianity, and he hated Christians. In fact, he wanted to stamp out Christianity from Rome the same way that Hitler wanted to stamp out the Jews from Germany. He absolutely detested them. But at the same time, every time he would try to get rid of a Christian, five more would pop up in their place, and he, could, it, he was so aggravated and annoyed by it. So he wrote to one of his best friends who was a pagan priest, and, and by the way, at the same time, he's trying to revitalize the, the Roman gods and goddesses and the Greek gods and goddesses. It's not getting any traction. Christianity is just, this was in the third and fourth century, and Christianity has, has become the official religion of Rome. And this guy, he just can't, he can't get over it. He's like, what the heck is going on here? So, so check this out. This is what he said. 
I don't even know if I wrote it down here. I may have to read it from up there. Yeah, I will. Can you guys see that? Man, I'm going to fall off this thing. You come get me, Michael. (laughs) This is what he said. He said, observe how the kindness of Christians to strangers, their care for the burial of their dead, and the sobriety of their lifestyle has done the most to advance their cause. Each of these things, I think, ought really to be practiced by us. He's talking about our religion. For it is disgraceful when no Jew is a beggar. And the impious Galileans, that was his nickname for Christians, support our poor in addition to their own. Everyone is able to see that our own people are in want of aid from us. And then the dying words of this man on his deathbed was this. The Galilean wins. Who do you think he's talking about? Jesus. He's like, I give up. Can't compete with this. Our religion is empty. It's weak. It's powerless. He never converted to Christianity, but he surrendered in, in the way that I can't. I can't. And, and, and the Greek pantheon of gods and goddesses really disappeared with him from their central place in Rome. That's really interesting to me. So here's the, the, the final point. We're going to make it quick, okay? The cure for moralism. What is the cure? We know what the cause is. We know what the cost is. It's dangerous. It's costly. It puts a bad taste in people's mouths. So what do we do about it? Well, check out this last part here. Look at verse 26, 25, sorry. For circumcision, and by the way, that was one of the things that the Jews trusted. They trusted in three things, really. They trusted in a special relationship with God. They were the Jews. They trusted in special revelation from God. They had the law. And they trusted in uh, this special sign, this covenant sign. It was a sign of their covenant relationship, okay? And they trusted in that. Circumcision. I'm not going to go into detail as to what that is because I'm sure you all know, okay? Don't want it to be awkward. You guys know what circumcision is. And it was a sign of, of a person's covenant relationship with God in the Old Testament. So Paul says here, verse 25, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. That was the worst thing you could call a Jew, uncircumcised. That was was like a curse word for them. It's how they referred to the pagans. You remember David when he confronted Goliath? He said, who's this uncircumcised Philistine blaspheming God? I'll take his head off. And he did take his head off. So Paul is essentially calling these Jews uncircumcised. He says, you're behaving the same way that a pagan does. And God's taking no stock in this physical sign that you have. It means nothing. It's a seal, but it has no reality to it. You know, recently I sold, I had something I thought was, this is a funny story. I'll I'll cut to the chase. I had something I thought was really valuable historic document, and I needed some extra money. So I sold this thing, and it was like worth what? Honey, one fiftieth of the price that I thought I would get for it. And even that, this guy's like, hey, you got to send the seal. I'm like, the what? He goes, the seal. Do you have the authentication? Do you have the seal of authenticity? <laughs> and I said, yes, I found it on the back of it, so I sent it. And it turns out that thing would have been absolutely worth If I would have just sent the seal that I didn't have the document, or if I would have just had the document without the seal, I would have gotten nothing but laughed at, Right? You have to have both. The seal is only as good as the authenticity. Man, why can I not say that? As the authenticity of the thing inside. And that's what Paul is getting at here. He's saying, you guys have this seal on the outside, but it's empty. There's no document in the box. It's, it's, it's a sham. It's a farce. It's empty. It's futile. 
So if a man who is uncircumcised keep the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded circumcision? He's using an example. He says, look, take a Philistine, take a Gentile. They're better than you if they're keeping the law and they're not circumcised. He's making a hypothetical point here. Verse 27, then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. And then verse 28, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Oh, man, I wish I could convey to you the, the punch that that had to a Jew reading that in that congregation. But a Jew is one inwardly. A Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the what? Of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise, he's using that play on the word Jew, which means praise. Person who's circumcised in the heart, his praise is not from man, but from God. So what's Paul doing here? He starts talking about circumcision, this sign of a covenant relationship with God that, that all they had was just this physical marker. And he's saying, you have lost the meaning of this. It takes the Spirit of God to do this to you. So what do we do? We're, we're supposed to have a relationship with God. We're, we have His law. We're supposed to keep it. But listen, no living human being keeps God's law perfectly. None of us do. So we're all in trouble, aren't we? Everybody in here is a covenant violator. I should just all say that. I'm a covenant violator. We've all violated God's covenant. Now, let me, let me tell you this. Circumcision is, is interesting. I know I shouldn't be interested by it, but I just am. I'm a preacher. What in the world has, has taking a sharp flint rock and cutting off the foreskin of the most sensitive and private part of a human being, what in the world has that got to do with a sign of a relationship to God? It's personal. It's it's an intimate thing. It's bloody. It's violent, really. I know we have. I watched one of my sons get circumcised in California. And this doctor, he said, he was bragging. He said, he will not, he will not cry one tear. And he let me watch it. And my baby didn't cry a tear. And I'm like, man, we come a long way with technology. He said, he will not bleed. He will not cry. And he didn't. He had all these gadgets and stuff. It wasn't like that in the Old Testament. In fact, if you converted and you were older or like Abraham, Abraham was a grown man. And God said, hey, good news. We're in covenant relationship. Hard news. I'm going to need you to do something for me that you're going to have to trust me on. Painful, bloody, personal, intimate, and violent. That's what circumcision was, and it was a sign. See, back then, you didn't write a covenant. If you're going to buy a car or a house, don't you get tired of signing your name on a piece of paper? They didn't mess with that back then. That didn't mean anything. In fact, it doesn't mean anything today, apparently. All the foreclosures going up. Anyway, that's another sermon for another day. If you, if you wanted a covenant with God, you cut a covenant. You had to cut a covenant. You know why they called it that? Do you know what you would do if you were going to make a covenant? Get ready to see some blood, okay? First of all, you took animal, animals and you cut them in two and you separated them. And you, whoever you were making a covenant with, you guys walked between those slaughtered pieces of animals. It was really disgusting. Flies would be everywhere, stench in the Middle Eastern sun. You would walk between those and you would shake hands or swap sandals or whatever it is they did. And you would say this, if I violate the terms of this covenant, may God bring a curse upon me like he has these animal parts. May God slaughter me. May he cut me off. Okay? You cut a covenant. Circumcision was just a microcosm of that bigger covenant picture. You were cutting off, you were, you were basically saying, I'm in a relationship with God, and if I ever violate my relationship with Him or breach 
this covenant. May God cut me off. May he slaughter me. May I be a bloody mess. Uh, and may the weight and the burden of the curse come upon me. That's what circumcision meant. So let me ask you a question. What are we to do? Because we've all violated it. Do you know that there was one who, who took a curse for you? Do you know that there was one who was slaughtered? And it was bloody and it was personal and it was intimate. And it was violent. And Isaiah says he was cut off from the land of the living. Mark 15 says he was forsaken. He was abandoned by God. Do you realize what Jesus did on that cross is what every covenant violator deserves? You and I both deserve that. Both all deserve that. All of us do. And Jesus did it for us. Check this out. This is what it says in Galatians chapter 2. Or excuse me, Colossians chapter 2. Paul was writing to Gentiles who were uncircumcised but who had professed faith in Christ. And this is what he says. And we're closing with this. In him, Jesus you were also circumcised. In him, Jesus, let me say that again, in him, you were also circumcised, not by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ. He was forsaken for you. He was slaughtered for you. He was cut off for you. And by the way, it's really interesting in Genesis 18 when Abraham made a covenant with God. Do you remember? God told him, go and slaughter animals And then Abraham fell asleep. Do you remember? This is a really interesting part of the Old Testament. Abraham did everything you were supposed to do, cut a covenant with somebody else. And then God put Abraham in a deep sleep because he knew Abraham can't walk through that and make a covenant with God because he'll break it. So you know, Abraham woke up and he rubbed his eyes and he saw incense and, and, and the glow, the Shekinah glow, and he saw God himself walking through those pieces. Why? Because God made a covenant with himself. God said to himself, may I be slaughtered, may I be cut off. I know I can keep the covenant, but it's him, it's Abraham that I know is not going to make good on this. And so God kept his promise on the cross. He slaughtered himself. That's amazing to me. That's, that's really, I know it's deep and rich. Think on it for a while. Meditate on that the rest of the day. We deserve to be cut off and slaughtered. It should be bloody and it should be violent and it should be painful. But in Christ, we were circumcised. Thank God. Thank God for that. May that shape us into a people that, that, that live lives that don't cause God's name to be blasphemed, right? All right, that's all I got to say. Let's pray.